0: On March 10th, 1912, the Arizona Republican ran a story on the front page that was basically a giant gotcha. The Republican, a morning paper, explained that it was certain the evening paper, the Phoenix Gazette, had been stealing and printing items out of its paper for months. Theft like this was semi-common and newspapers were always quick to try and quash down on such things. So the previous day, March 9th, they planted a false story about a man being robbed for all of 20 cents. And sure enough, that same story ran that evening in the Gazette. Of course, the Republicans seized on the opportunity to chide their rival, which they had previously dubbed the Evening Outcast, about this blatant theft. Though clearly caught with their hand in the cookie jar, the Gazette tried to turn things around on what they dubbed the Morning Unreliable. With a fair amount of cheek, the paper explained that they had read the story and then tried to verify it, but were unable to, you know, because it was made up. So they decided to print the Republicans' article because they on good faith assumed it was quote-unquote sufficiently reliable. They then added the stinger of quote, we seem to have been mistaken, end quote. The Republican didn't take that lying down, thundering from its own pages that it had 5,000 subscribers who were, quote, perfectly willing to take a chance on the reliability of this paper's news columns, end quote. On the face of it, the whole situation is downright funny. But underlying this incident was a very real antagonism and sense of rivalry that was ever present in the world of frontier journalism. Newspapers in Arizona were more than competing businesses. They were often political animals, fighting for bones in a market that was too crowded and too volatile to allow anyone not willing to fight. So, as often as not, newspapers would engage in an ink-and-paper Darwinian struggle to prove that they were fit enough to survive. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ... The History of Arizona. (music) Episode 152, Those Old Yellow Dog Days. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode and are feeling a little bit better about your own occupations after hearing the conditions that frontier journalists were working under. I will also attest that long hours and little pay remain the norm in journalism to this very day. This episode is going to be our third and final in my fairly self-indulgent series covering newspapers in the Arizona Territory. It's also the one I've been teasing for a while, and glad that I can finally talk about. Because, as you are probably well aware of by now, I love stories that highlight humanity's foibles. And there are a lot of foibles to be found here. I think it's safe to say that, with very few exceptions, everyone who owned or edited a paper, and they were often the same person, were a contentious lot, quick to take offense, and eager to retaliate. That doesn't mean that they couldn't put up a good front, at least at first. Usually when a paper, even a rival, set up shop or expanded or even tried something new, its brethren would applaud the effort. In 1873, William Barry of the Yuma Sentinel urged subscribers to support the decision of John Marion for converting the Prescott Minor from a weekly to a daily paper, despite the fact that the two were locked in a bitter feud of words. Fifteen years later, the editor of the now Prescott Journal Minor congratulated the editor of the Flagstaff Champion for turning it into one of the best papers in the territory. Even the Phoenix Herald admitted in 1890 that the Arizona Republican made a, quote, very credible typographical appearance, end quote. On at least one of these occasions, the congratulations could be a little self-serving, as when the staunch Republican Roland C. Brown of the Tucson Citizen congratulated another man for aiming to set up a Democratic paper in the old Pueblo. Brown didn't do this out of any sense of camaraderie or professional courtesy, but because he wanted someone to take out his rival, the Tucson Star. But when an editor's hackles were up, they could, and often did, resort to that age-old tactic that kids on playgrounds everywhere know and love. Name-calling. I'm not joking. Editors very often resorted to just denigrating their rivals through a wide variety of put-downs. We saw at the beginning of the episode how the Republican called the Phoenix Gazette the Evening Outcast, while the Gazette called the Republican the Morning Unreliable. The quick-to-anger John Marion would call John Wasson of Tucson the valet and lackey of Governor Richard C. McCormick, as well as a vile wretch. When the Phoenix Herald started printing, John Clum of the Tombstone Epitaph called editor Charles E. McClintock a silly puppy, while the Phoenix Gazette called it a, quote, dirty, vilifying paper, end quote. Charles Beach, the editor of the Prescott Minor after Marion, would also attack the Herald and McClintock, calling the man a cur and mush, as well as an animal, quote, with a cranium inflated with gas and entirely void of sense, perhaps caused by cerebropathy, quote. The Yuma Sentinel stepped things up a notch when it called the editor of the Tucson Citizen a straight-up jackass. And John Dunbar of the Tombstone Epitaph wins for sheer nastiness when he called the then editor of the Phoenix Herald a quote, lying hermaphrodite, and referred to the newspaper as quote, the Phoenix Sausage. These sorts of insults could be precipitated by a number of things such as politics or stances on hot button issues, but they could also be unleashed by things as petty as grammatical or typographical errors that might appear in a rival's newspaper. Also, as we started today's episode with, one of the most serious offenses that could be lobbed against a competitor was stealing articles. From what we talked about last week, it's no wonder that a newspaper might filch a story or two here or there to fill out its pages. But if you were caught, the paper you stole from would not hesitate to humiliate you. The Tombstone Nugget once charged the Tucson Star with stealing an article and not properly crediting them. The star responded, rather cheekily, by saying that if they had credited the nugget, their readers would have questioned the story's veracity. The Phoenix Herald would call the Prescott Journal the master appropriator, but the Globe silverbelt disagreed, saying that the Prescott Miner deserved that title. Apparently the miner had recently ran a column and a half of editorial material lifted straight out of the Silver Belt, which prompted the remark. And, funny enough, considering how in the introduction the Gazette was caught red-handed stealing an article from the Republican, more than three decades earlier, the Gazette was the one laying a snare for the Phoenix Herald. They also had published a false article hoping that the Herald would take the bait, which they did. In addition to telling all of its readers, quote, "...today the enterprise of mush," one of the derogatory nicknames it used for the Herald, "...in calling the latest news from our column is exposed." End quote. The Gazette also changed to being an evening paper to not give their rival the chance again. But often enough, the vitriol was unleashed merely because of differing opinions, or that the editor felt that they personally had been slighted. There are too many here to mention, but I'll try to give some of the better examples. William J. Berry, editor of the Yuma Sentinel, and John Marion, the caustic editor of the Prescott Minor, had once worked together and were quite chummy. But after a perceived slight, Berry would label Marion, quote, the cuss of the Prescott Minor, end quote, while Marion would mock Berry because of his weight. This was all in good fun, but what started as some gentle ribbing between colleagues soon turned venomous. When Barry and Marion supported different candidates for a congressional delegate in 1874, Marion escalated things by calling Barry a drunkard, which, to be fair, was true, but it was also the pot calling the kettle black. Barry responded with a shower of derogatory epithets, describing Marion as a nincompoop, infernal wretch, miserable sycophant, blackguard, and mendacious writer. Mendacious was a favorite word of Barry's, which just means that Marion was a liar. He then went on to describe a party in Prescott where a dead, drunk Marion was found lying on the floor. Barry then took it a step too far, adding, quote, "...it was then for the first time that we discovered Darwin's connecting link between the fish and the quadruped. As he lay with his drunken slobber issuing from his immense mouth... One present was forcibly impressed with the fact that there was a connecting link between the catfish and a jackass, quote. Of course, Marion couldn't let this stand, reporting in his own paper that Barry was just as guilty as he of being drunk and disorderly. But he too took things to the next level, writing, quote, "...unlike you, we were not pointed out as a regular whiskey bloat, nor did any person ever attempt to use us for a water closet." That is a toilet, as you were used that day on Lynx Creek, end quote. Marion couldn't help but get in scrapes with other editors. After leaving the Prescott Miner, he went on to edit the Prescott Enterprise, where he lashed out at his old paper, which was now in the hands of the Republican Charles Beach. The Enterprise would call the miner a quote, filthy sheet, which is a disgrace to Arizona and an ulcer on decent journalism, end quote while classifying Beach as a, quote, base wretch. Beach, in turn, would brand Marion a, quote, slandering reptile, end quote. Marion would also clash swords with Louis Hughes, the longtime editor of the Tucson Star, especially after the capital moved from Prescott to Phoenix. Hughes once gently chided Marion for his, uh, forceful personality, once remarking that, quote, Marion had some good points in him, and with a little dressing down, he would make a good country editor. End quote. After the capital removed to Phoenix, Hughes was one of the Tucson editors, delighting a little bit over the fact that Marion would no longer have the territorial printing work, and pointed out that Marion might have to relocate to the Salt River Valley in order to survive. Marion responded by accusing Hughes of disliking the Owry family, who, as we know, were very influential in Tucson, of befriending the great land swindler James Addison Rivas, and even of being in on a robbery of the Southern Pacific Railroad. Hughes would have his own battles to fight with the Tucson citizen over a host of political issues, and it's during these scrapes that his enemies would really seize on the nickname of Pinhead Hughes to describe him. Down in Yuma, a number of newspapers did their level best to unseat the established Yuma Sentinel. Samuel J. Purdy had been fired from the Sentinel, so he had started up the Yuma Free Press, which constantly prophesied the Sentinel's doom and opposed the owner of the rival paper's run for governor. Purdy's attacks were so constant and so vitriolic, the Sentinel finally asked in print, quote, "...is the brevet editor of the Free Press an idiot or a jackass?" End quote. Speaking of Purdy, he left Yuma in 1882 and actually took over the Tombstone Epitaph, leading John Clum, the epitaph's founding editor, to remark that the paper was now consigned to edition Once in town, Purdy would soon get into heated arguments with the rival Tombstone Nugget, as the two papers competed both economically and politically. The editor of the Nugget, Patrick Hamilton once went on a tirade against Purdy, saying, quote, You despicable dog, you know in your heart that the meanest wretch that walks the streets of Tombstone is your peer in honor, honesty, manliness, and decency. You know that your life has been a living lie. You are a cur by nature, a traitor at heart, and a scoundrel by instinct. End quote. With words like that, it's no wonder that Hamilton and Purdy would be one of just a handful of examples when words did not suffice and violence was called for. We've seen one of these examples already. Back in episode 32, I recounted how Edward Cross, the editor of the Two-Back Arizonian, had offended Sylvester Mallory so badly that the two had actually fought a duel with each other, though it had essentially ended in the pair bearing the hatchet over a round of drinks. Though Maori and his supporters then bought the paper and moved it to Tucson, where they could oversee what it published. It turns out that the feud that started in the newspapers of Tombstone soon erupted into Hamilton challenging Purdy to a duel. Purdy accepted the challenge, and the pair even went the whole nine yards of arranging seconds and doctors to be on hand. Early state historian James H. McClintock recounts how this party headed south because dueling wasn't exactly legal, with, quote, ostentatious secrecy, end quote. By that, he means that everyone really knew about this quote-unquote secret duel, and bets were being placed in every saloon about which of the two men would be brought back to town in a casket. Now, William J. Lyon says that the men made it down to Mexico, but McClintock says they stopped in the San Pedro River Valley, a little south of Hereford. Both could be right, because depending on how you define a little, a little south of Hereford, is Mexico. However, once in their chosen spot, it became readily apparent that neither man was that keen to actually duel. Their seconds made a great show of pacing off the ground and then got into heated arguments over where Hamilton and Purdy were to stand and what pistols to select. And these arguments just went on and on and on until everyone just agreed to call the whole thing off and the party snuck back into Tombstone that night. McClintock adds in that the next day, each of them were forced to endure all manner of jokes at their expense. The almost Hamilton-Purdy duel is definitely a fever pitch for violence between editors during the territorial period. But it wasn't just the sharp tongues of their journalistic brethren that they needed to be on the watch for. Libel laws in the territory at this time were fairly general, and any suits against papers would have to prove intent to defame. That's a pretty high bar to clear, and is true for a lot of libel laws that exist today. However, despite that high bar, libel suits were a constant in the newspaper business, usually thanks to the insult-laden language that frontier editors were wont to use. At one point in 1891, Hughes's Tucson Star had $200,000 worth of libel claims against his paper, or roughly $6 million in today's money. John Dorrington, who edited the Yuma Sentinel, faced $125,000 in libel actions over the course of his lifetime. Some of these suits could at times come from other newspapers, such as when Hughes and the star brought up Roland C. Brown of the Tucson Citizen over remarks that the latter had made about Hughes's checkered political career. Nothing came of this suit, but Hughes himself would soon find yet another lawsuit against him for libel. But one class that was almost certain to bring lawsuits were the political officials who always bore the brunt of the barbs hurled by the press. John Marion, as you probably would suspect by now, had a long list of libel cases, such as when Clark C. Churchill, about to be appointed attorney general in the administration of Governor Wolfley, sued him for printing that he was part of the Peralta land-grant scheme. The grand jury sent the case to district court, where it died, mainly because the true author of the piece, so not Marion, apologized to Churchill. In 1884, a grand jury indicted our old friend, Tom Whedon of the Florence Enterprise, for misrepresenting the actions of a stagecoach driver and set the bail at a high $1,000. One memorable case came in 1890, when former Governor Conrad Zulik sued Edwin S. Gill, editor of the Arizona Republican, for calling him a swindler and a crook. The grand jury indicted Gill, but it was quashed on the grounds that the grand jury had been impaneled illegally. This ruling was upheld on appeal, which inflamed none other than John Marion, who was an ardent supporter of Zulik. This devolved into yet another round of attacks, as Gill called Marion a deranged reprobate, whose paper carried the, quote, senseless vaporings of this senile bear, end quote. However, shortly after this, An ex-territorial Supreme Court justice named James H. Wright also secured another indictment against Gill. And going back to episode 130, where we talked about how even officers of the law could sometimes be the clearest violators of it, Wright decided that he couldn't wait for the court to act. So he took a pot shot at Gill on the streets of Phoenix, but missed, and found himself facing a stiff fine for carrying a concealed weapon. This probably isn't going to come as a surprise to you, but this sort of violence against a newspaper editor who ran his mouth was not uncommon in the slightest. Hughes suffered several acts of violence, including a mob storming into his office and breaking his arm in front of his wife due to an article he had written. Another time... An enraged employee of a county recorder Hughes had criticized stormed into his office, hit him with a cowhide whip, and thrust a six-shooter in his face. In episode 91, I touched on the short life of Prescott Minor editor Charles Beach, who an enraged reader once attacked with a wagon spoke. However, most of Beach's problems he brought on himself by fleecing people of wages and property and having numerous affairs and dalliances. An angry husband killed him in 1889 by shooting shotgun blasts through the window of the boarding house Beach was staying in. Probably the worst of the violence is the story of James J. Healy of the Parker Herald, who in April 1910 so enraged the town's populace that they decided to get rid of him for good. They dragged Healy out of Parker, stopping along the way at several telegraph poles to draw him by the neck with a rope until he almost suffocated. He finally was able to escape, though McClintock, who never told us what Healy did to deserve this treatment, writes that the editor's appeal to territorial officials for justice when unheeded. But if there was one slur you could throw at a paper that would raise the most ire, it was accusing it of being a hireling press or being the organ of this or that official. Independent editors cringed at those words, but the problem was that many of their competitors were exactly that. Whatever you might think of our media today, it doesn't even touch the rabid, outspoken political leanings of the papers of the 19th century. In its first edition, the Arizona Republican would say, quote, aside from hereditary predilection, every man resident in the Salt River Valley should be fighting under the Republican banner, end quote. Of course, the paper had been set up to support a very specific branch of the Republican Party, the one controlled by then-Governor Wolfley. The other Phoenix papers were incensed by this, with the Herald firing back just a day after the Republicans' first issue with, We know you wear the collar of your political bosses and are compelled to publish their sentiments, and that the paper's purpose was, Destroying the Citizen and also the Herald, a paper they never could control. But all that is in 1890, years before the Prescott Minor, as originally founded, barely mentioned politics at all. For example, it ran a piece about Abraham Lincoln's re-election, but aside from covering the legislature, it didn't really print anything else political. That all changed in 1867, when John Marion took over. From the get-go, he announced that his paper would be a Democratic paper. Marion being Marion, he proclaimed that the miner would be the, quote, "...organ of the white people of Arizona," end quote, and attacked President Andrew Johnson, blacks, and California papers that dared talk down to Arizona. He would also go into a full frenzy against Governor Richard C. McCormick for moving the capital to Tucson, which he called, quote, "...the mud town on the Santa Cruz," end quote. His hatred for McCormick and Tucson and Republicans also caused him to rail against the Tucson citizen and its editor John Wasson, whom he characterized as McCormick's new valet, lackey, and a vile wretch. He had similar vindictiveness towards the Tucson Arizonian early on, calling it, quote, this vile sheet, the excrescence of all that is low, contemptible, and corrupt in Pima County, the bantling of Governor McCormick, the chickadee of newspaper littleness, end quote. He also castigated the paper and editor, Pearson W. Dooner, for, quote, its low-flung items, its imbecile reasoning, false assertions, and servile praise of Governor McCormick, end quote. But Marion's appraisal of Dooner and the Arizonian would change thanks to what we talked about in episode 150. Dooner and his paper switch from lavishly praising Republicans to, to adhering to the Democratic standard, which resulted in McCormick actually repoing the Arizonians' press. As they say, there is no zealot like a convert, and Dooner was soon throwing every accusation at the governor that he was a quote-unquote black Republican, a carpetbagger, and an electoral defrauder. At one point, just to cause confusion, I guess, he reported that McCormick had withdrawn from the race to be congressional delegate. We've seen elsewhere the bickering between the Tombstone Nugget and Tombstone Epitaph, representing, at least during their heyday, the Democratic and Republican worldview, respectively. In Tucson, the Star, under editor Louis Hughes, became the leading Democratic paper in the state, and other papers were constantly trying to knock the Star out of that position. However, this hyperpartisanism could be a precarious existence. For example, the Clifton Clarions declared candidates were apparently defeated at the polls at one point, which actually caused the newspaper to fold. Though Lyon, my source for that anecdote, fails to note the year and the political leaning of the paper before it was scuttled. Also, editors and politicians never quite trusted each other, as the frontier editor had a tendency to be a little too independently minded. A good example of this was Charles Beach, who took over the Prescott Minor, swung it Republican, and cozied up to both Governor John C. Fremont and Territorial Secretary John J. Gosper, the real power behind the throne, as it were. However, Beach began increasingly to be in the tight spot of having both to defend Gosper while attacking him for potential misuse of public funds. Eventually, Beach had to turn fully against both the absentee Fremont and Gosper just so he wasn't seen as their lapdog in the face of well-founded accusations. He then found that his access to other newspapers, and even telegraph reports, which were being overseen by the sister of Charles McClintock, the editor of the Gosper-led Phoenix Herald, were being held up. So why were papers so gung-ho to be political? Well, for one, the 19th century was an incredibly polarized time where towns would literally attack each other over who had the political power of being named the county seat. Secondly, as we saw last week, newspapers were not moneymakers, and many editors wanted to make the jump into actual politics. Hughes' appointment to governor is the biggest example of this But we have the editors of the Phoenix Herald and Arizona Gazette each serving a term as territorial secretary, and others such as Sam Purdy, Roland C. Brown, Tom Whedon, and John Marion all serving in the territorial legislature. And the last reason kind of follows the same logic as the second. Being a friend to the political party in power meant money. Before the reforms of Chester A. Arthur and others in the late 19th century, patronage, Throwing your supporters' cushy jobs in business was extremely common. And for our Frontier editors, what we are really talking about here is printing contracts. Remember that each session of the legislature paid to print all of its proceedings, along with gubernatorial proclamations and reports from the Supreme Court. More locally, county and city governments also paid to print minutes, laws, legal notices, and proclamations. This was pretty lucrative, because though federal law set a ceiling for how much the territorial secretary could pay per folio page, it also allowed the secretary to pay up to 20% of the cost up front. To the Frontier editor begging subscribers and advertisers to please, please, please pay me, 20% of a huge printing job up front sounded amazing. One of the reasons Richard C. McCormick started the Prescott Minor was so that his paper could publish all the territorial laws and notices. In fact, during the legislative session, it kind of ceased being a paper, and the press was used solely for this purpose. You better believe that newspapers fought each other desperately over this funding. And one of the reasons that John Marion howled so much when the Capitol moved to Tucson and John Wasson howled equally loudly when it moved back to Prescott is because of the loss of this revenue stream. And accusations of misuse of funds and all manner of improprieties by public officials ran in these papers because they were annoyed that some other editor got the gig. Then there were the accusations of fraud and overcharging that editors leveled at each other over the public printing. Lewis Hughes and others would charge that Marion in particular had overcharged the territorial legislature for thousands of dollars. Then there were the occasions when different branches inside the territorial government favored different printers. This was the case after the capital moved back to Prescott, when the miner, now controlled by Charles Beach, and the Enterprise, run by the always colorful Marion, were each awarded different government printing contracts. Despite each having their finger in the pie, they nonetheless stabbed at each other in the press, drumming up all sorts of past indiscretions to discredit the other. Even better, the Yuma Sentinel then pointed out a typographical error in Beech's printing, and Secretary John J. Gosper had to publicly apologize. So during the next session, Gosper then surreptitiously threw the government printing jobs to the Phoenix Herald, which he just so happened to be part owner of. And this is where politics comes back into play. If you wanted the government printing job, you had better be the friend of the guys running the government. The major exception to this was poor Lewis Hughes, who was always angling to get the printing contracts, but even after the Democrats came to power during the Zulik administration, he was left out in the cold. There was a lot of internal politics going on, but Hughes would be one newspaper that actually thrived without government printing though he would become a fast enemy of both Zulik and his territorial secretary, our old friend and early state historian Thomas Farish. Even after Hughes won the governorship, his own sense of morals would not let him throw patronage to his own newspaper. And I have to say, I kind of respect that. Eventually newspapers would move to the more stable, ad-supported model at the very end of the 19th century, putting them on a much more stable financial footing. However, I have personally seen a newspaper in the modern day cry foul and fight when a state legislature tried to get rid of having to designate a paper record to print notices in, so it's not like it went away entirely. And the move to the ad-supported model, now that advertisers could pay and higher startup costs had weeded the field a little bit, also broke the stronghold politics played on newspapers. The Arizona Republican in 1918 characterized the latter half of the 19th century as, quote, those were the old yellow dog days. Nobody was at length interested in the newspaper except the party candidate for office. He sometimes subsidized it, and if elected, he threw patronage in its way as one throws a bone to a faithful dog, end quote. And... Honestly, I think that's a good place to end this three-episode self-indulgence streak. Like everything else, great change was happening in journalism as the 1800s gave way to the 1900s. Speaking of which, I want to leave off today with a programming note. I've been going back and forth on this for some time, but I'm going to take the next two weeks off. As usual, this isn't about me getting a vacation so much as it's about me gearing up for what's next. We only have a couple more things that I'm going to talk about on this side of the holy line of demarcation separating the 19th and the 20th centuries, but I need to get my facts straight. I have at least four books I have to read in addition to rereading sections of some of my more longer-term sources, something that I just haven't managed to do while reading and recording for the podcast every week. So join me on October 1st as we gear up for the 20th century, which means we are going to need to discuss major labor strikes, the coming of the dams, and, of course, eventual statehood. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.